Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, joined alongside, as I am every week, by media executive Grail Hallett, no TV producer in Syria, ah, Syria, ah, guy and guru, <laughs> Mr. Sam Griswold. Ah, like, like I'm, a, I stepped on something. Today, like you, were, <laughs> you sounded like you were having some kind of medical condition. Yeah, I was. I'm fine. I'm fine. Today on OTV, we talked to John Strong. John, of course, is the lead broadcaster for Fox's soccer coverage. Uh, you know, a really good and much needed American voice in this game, Fox. And we've talked about it on the show before, guys. Uh, seems to be one of the only broadcasting entities in our beautiful game here that are actually making an effort to have American broadcasters on. Uh, in America, go figure. I mean, it's, you know, we've spoken about it before, but it seems like everybody wants to hear an English accent. Well, I don't. I want to hear John Strong. So I'm glad we have him on the show today. So, uh, guys, I, you know, I could ask you what you're over today and over the ball before we get started, but I think I know what it's going to be. Are they the uh, the not so super league? What happened there? What do you got? Grail first. What do you got? What do you um, over on over the ball? Yeah, I want to word this carefully because it's a bit of a tongue twister. I'm over know-it-all American owners telling us what's best with a sport that's been around for a century plus. Okay. And again, that, that's just a lead into the conversation all we right, will be right. having. We're getting there. Go ahead, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm specifically over people saying how much they hate the idea of the Super League, um, yet only watch and buy gear from these super clubs. So if you're not into the oh. Super League, don't give your money to the Super League teams. Basically, wow. Grail. I'm not. I'm not including you in this because I, I know, know you. I don't, yeah, you I don't take it. That no, way, but Sam. you. You lived yeah. in London. You're. You know. You have every reason to be a Chelsea fan, and you've been a fan for a really long time. Um. You know. I'll point out an article I read in the Guardian by a guy named Dave Caldwell who talked about how much he hated the idea and then conceded he started following Tottenham Hotspur because it was a funny name for a sports team, at least to an American. So. You know, oh, there you go. There you go. You don't like the league, help out everybody else. Well, I don't think people like the colors of the shirts. People, like, it's bizarre, but well, fashion. You know, I mean, think about fashion. I mean, a lot of people buy uh, jerseys because they like what it looks like, they have no idea what the team is. Yeah. Right. All right. Hey, but let, let's get into it here a little bit because yeah. look, your Premier League, you know, the English act like they're the soccer country. Well, the Premier League is mostly foreign players and foreign coaches, but the league has been around for a long, long time. So right now the money is there. And when money comes in, like with Russian oligarchs or American billionaires, you suddenly the profile goes up, better players come into the mix. So this is the downside of what they're dealing with because a lot of these English clubs were all about to go under, some of them, uh, low fan base, no TV contracts. Well, that's all changed. So you gotta take the good with the bad. You really do. And I think we have to find some sort of happy medium here. But uh, but the Super League, man, it's super like sounded like a Bond supervillain league, you know, where it reminded me of the old. Remember that Rollerball James Conn yeah. movie where oh, yeah. each country had like one team that was like, you know, the Tokyo Devils or something. And they would play internationally. But, uh, you know, you need these domestic leagues. But um, it spawned some great nicknames. I've got to say that I love. I loved you. Of course, you had the Dirty Dozen, which was the which were the twelve teams broadly that were conspiring to do this, and then the Dirty Half Dozen, which were the six teams in the Premier League. But you know, my my biggest beef is the uh, clandestine nature of the whole thing. 
and, and just outright lying that went on behind the scenes and, and springing it on the night before the Champions League was going to announce their new format. To me, the whole cloak and dagger and just not in the spirit of how things should happen was uh, as annoying to me as anything. And, and had they done it a different way, I'm not saying the result would have been different, but you've already got a lot of suspicious fan bases there who really dislike American owners. And this fed into everything they dislike about American owners. Yeah, and the American owners are the ones who still have not basically apologized yet. I think John Henry- John did Henry a did a bit. video apology that was like a hostage video, frankly. <laughs> Right. So, but um, this is a reality. This is this was a money grab, and it kind of got exposed for what it was. And if you look at like here domestically, and a lot of the owners are Americans, like the NFL. These guys are having brain injuries and short careers. And what do the NFL owners want to do? They're making billions already. They want to add preseason games, more games. Well, no, well, they added a regular season game. They're right, and a, seventeen right. games. Yeah. So, um, you know, and the players are making the same salaries, but, uh, you know, it's it, it was, you know, it's a, it was it's an American thing, too. I think we're going to get blamed for it here in the States. Well, I also think, guys, and, and Sam, I want you to jump in because I don't want to dominate this with my uh, craziness about it. But, uh, you know, it was only in October where Project Big Picture was mm. put out there by Liverpool and Man United, which was, again, a, a blatant attempt to control the Premier League, the six clubs controlling what goes on within the Premier League. And that thing failed miserably. The Premier League voted against it. The 14 other clubs did. So this is not in a vacuum for anybody who knows. I mean, this is them taking another bite at the apple mm -hmm. in, in an even bigger way. And again, I think the supporters were so outraged because there was no, there was no heads up like, hey, this is what we're thinking of doing. What do you think of this? None of that. So, Sam, I'll let you go. Well, I, I, Grail, I, you said you weren't going to dominate the conversation. I know. I gave, I'm, I'm letting Sam, Sam a question. So, no, uh, I'm deferring. No, I think from, from an American angle, like you're talking about, Kevin, it's, it's pretty amazing the power these fan groups have on the ground. I mean, when you consider that in, what, the last 15 years, the, the Rams have moved, you know, three times. I mean, teams just up and yeah. leave cities here. And, you know, this is just... I mean, this would have been a big shift, but I mean, it's pretty amazing how they can make their voice heard and actually stop something from happening. Um, I, I think, you know, also from the fan standpoint, I think we have to acknowledge that. And, you know, John Strong mentioned this a little bit and it's been kind of highlighted in the empty stadiums like, you know, the fans on the ground exist kind of in their own realm. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge there's. The, the match going fans are different from the fans in the United States. You know, they're, they're part of the spectacle. Um, you know, I almost think of like a, a, t a live TV audience, you know, laughing along, not that they're, that's what they're doing, but like they're really providing something. And I, I'm really curious to see how, what the relationship is between these fans and clubs emerging out of this. Right. Because they're still paying more and more money to go to these games that they, I mean, it's, it amazes me that they can charge as much as they do. And then they're essentially selling this fandom. You know, you watch a yeah. Premier League, uh, you know, an ad for a Premier League game, you see Salah score a goal, and then you see 10,000 fans waving flags, right? I mean, they're selling that. The only difference is Salah gets paid $10 million a year and the fans pay to be in the stadium. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree, Sam. But, but also, just from a straight business perspective, the naivete 
of these, you know, incredibly successful owners. And again, I, I'm, I'm harping a little bit on the American owners because they went over there and they have had this uneasy relationship with the supporters from day one. But the fact that they wouldn't have a sense of what might fly in advance and what would have to be pre-sold to get this done. And instead, it's just an announcement is sent out. Now, Grail, I, wait, I, I got to cut you off. Wait, I wait, wait. Disagree. No, nobody, right, in the club, nobody in the club knows what's going on. The manager doesn't know. The players don't know. Only the sure. owners who are talking to each other know. Right. So they, they don't care what the fans think. They don't care what the players think because they're indispensable. They're dispensable. Now, it was a money grab, plain and simple. They were trying to try to do what NFL owners do. Kroenke has made more money by, by pulling a team. He's from Missouri. He pulled the, the St. Louis the Rams. Rams out of there right. to go to L.A. It was a money grab. No, no, no heart, no soul, no anything. Right. It's just straight money. And so, you know, that's exactly what it was. And you also say, I don't think they just released this little idea they did a market study. They did all kinds of PR crap, but it blew up in their face because it, it was such a bad idea in the way that you're going to blow up a bunch of domestic leagues, leagues that people have followed their whole life. And you're just going to, you're just going to blow it up. You think it's like moving LA, the, the Rams from St. Louis to LA. No, man, it's, it's a big difference, but they did their due diligence. They just did. They had a shitty idea though. Well, their communication strategy was awful. And actually I think they might, I'm not sure if it ever would have flown. However, if they had brought the parties into the conversation and genuinely wanted to hear what a Jurgen Klopp thought or whatever, I mean, Jurgen right. Klopp is never, ever moving forward going to respect the Fenway Sports Group the same way ever. Pep Guardiola is going to have problems with his own ownership team, too, because they they feel betrayed by these guys who, again, you know, they were looking, they're funded by JP Morgan. Each one of those clubs is going to make $400 million. Okay. So they don't, you're right. I, I, by the way, I don't disagree with you. They don't care about the fans, which is the problem. Which is the problem. Sure. Correct. Yes. And if it's, if it's always money, Sam, what's the take in Italy on this? Cause we certainly yeah. know the American and English version of this. Yeah, uh, the, it was pretty negative from all the clubs not involved, as you would imagine. I mean, Sassuolo, for example, played Milan yesterday, uh, and they were threatening not even to play the game because, you know, they had been mentioned in this group. Um, Agnelli, the, who's, you know, the Juve owner and sort of, uh, if not the main architect, one of the main architects of this whole thing is, is taking a lot of heat. There were rumors that he was stepping down. I don't think that's happened yet. But um, I mean, the blowback has been the exact same as it's been all over Europe. You know, these clubs don't belong to you. They belong to the fans on the ground. But but I mean, Italy is grappling with a lot of the same issues that the Premier League are is, you know, they they open the door to this foreign investment. And, you know, they're now dealing with the, you know, the repercussions. The, yeah, there's yeah. no no such thing as a free ride. So I mean, and, the, I know, mean the, the, yeah. the uh, I'm sorry, but Sam, I just want to piggyback. And the other mm -hmm. thing that you understand about Italian clubs is, you know, just the same with English clubs is they're part of the so they're like woven into the fabric of their communities. Mm -hmm. You know, they are part of the community. They are not just a team with a logo. No, they, exactly. They, they were I mean, built. They were built from scratch as like community organizations. I think. Yeah, I think as in a very you know sort of basic, you know, kind of comparison, Italian, you know, soccer in Europe and Italy is sort of built from the ground up. And if right. you look at the North American model, it's sort of from the top down, like where, where should we put a franchise that would be good? Where can we drop right. a team? 
right. Well, it so, didn't grow organically, really. I think it was in that closed yeah. system. That's why it will never work over there because mm -hmm. it, it everybody. I mean, even though the Bundesliga is different, where they're kind of owned by the fans, so to speak. You know, the fans feel in all the various leagues around the world that they kind of have a say and, and a vested interest in it. Mm -hmm. And and it's not that we don't have, you know, like hardcore fans in the United States, but it's different. I, I, I yeah. cannot compare the Giants fans relationships to the Giants as what goes on with, you know, Napoli and their team or whatever. I just no, like, and, and never mind, you know, in Germany where these teams yeah. are all, you know, uh, club, uh, sorry, member owned. Yeah. yeah, they they look. They guys. They tried to power play this through. Those were huge names, the biggest names in soccer. Those teams. They tried to push it through. They gave it their best shot. Unfortunately, this is not the end of it. We have not heard the end of it because no. They, I still think there are issues that need to be sorted out. And you know, again, I just mentioned the German model. I I really like that. You know, members having more say in what goes on. And you know, for the most part, I think the clubs in Germany do a pretty good job of actually being profitable, which you know is definitely not the case uh, a lot of other places. I, yeah, I also think there are going to be ramifications for the, you know, at least looking at the Premier League, the 14 clubs that were not part of this conspiracy want to exact a pound of flesh. Pissed, I, I guarantee pissed, you. Yeah. So whether or not their teams will be docked points or executives, heads will have to roll. I mean, Ed Woodward was the first guy to basically, you know, take uh, take one for the Bail team. But I, but I, but I do think even within Liverpool and stuff, they're they're going to be under tremendous pressure to sell their stake in the team. I mean, I just I I don't think they have any idea. You know, John Henry doing a video apology is not going to make Liverpool supporters forget. Well, it, it could go away. It's a long term play. And we're talking about short term ramifications right now. Grail, you mentioned the them doing this under the cover of darkness in a sort of a shady way. Well, I don't know how any other soccer business gets done. Uh, maybe not domestically here in this country, but overseas. Look what we've been dealing with with FIFA uh, yeah. and UEFA. This is the way they do business. So what's so interesting is, you know, den of thieves, no honor among thieves here. They write, uh, let's talk about Champions League and how they changed some rules right in the, you know, before announcing the changes. The Super League is announced. Yeah, well, no, I mean, we've been talking about this on the podcast the past few weeks, just the uh, the idea of, you know, increasing the number of teams and going to a Swiss model, which is kind of a league table format. I mean, through 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 no efforts of their own, I think all of a sudden Champions League has been elevated to a new status. And I think, you know, for these final semifinals and then the final that's coming up after that, I think there's going to be renewed interest. There's almost going to be relief that right. we can kind of go back into the safe harbor of the champions league. They still have to moving forward. They still have to sell their new product to people. But in a way, I think the failure of the super league makes it easier for the champions league to push through something because people are going to look at that as the alternative and be like, you know, it wasn't that bad. Well, yeah, I find it so funny because one of the super league teams, I forget which one or who was, representatives say, no, we really want to just sort of compliment the Champions League. It's like, oh yeah, it's exactly what you've created is a Champions League and, well, they and were gonna uh, take they're not going to take it lightly. Well, they were going to take their midweek spots. So that's nonsense. So you would have to play these games in the Super League during the midweek. So Champions League would be out of the mix. Right. And they wanted to negotiate their own sponsorship and broadcast deals. So they were going, I mean, to, the, the, the idea that it would complement anything is absurd. 
Absolutely. So, all right. So, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting because every year, every all these stories come up that are so interesting. And I thought Mourinho gets fired again, and it's not even a top story. Nobody's even talking about it. So I want to talk about it a little bit here. Uh, basically, what's that whole thing? You repeat the same pattern over and over. And yeah, well, the definition, of result, insan- crazy. the definition of insanity. Yeah, exactly. And it's so yeah. predictable. You know, he starts... Mourinho starts losing and he starts going at the players, his own guys that he brought in and paid and well, everything else. When and he, he got, so- when he got hired, we talked about it, you know, and right. I gave it, I, I actually, it happened more quickly than I thought. I always give him like three years and then the yeah, three years, but it's gotten shorter each day. time. It's gotten shorter each time. But I did read this stat, which is, you know, let's not, let's not shed a tear for uh, Jose Mourinho. He's got 55 million pounds worth of contracts that he's collecting on between um, Tottenham. He got 16 million pounds in a buyout. Chelsea, he had two separate contracts and Man United. He's collected 55 million pounds and essentially like expired contracts that need to be paid out prior to him you know, finishing the term of the contract. Uh, who's the so. loser now? Who's the loser now? But, but again, so, it just shows you, you know, long-term contracts. It's just another example, like long-term deals are just not a good idea because right, you end right. up, you know, rarely does a coach end up seeing out the term of his contract. And again, I think uh, Levy learned the hard way, the owner of Spurs that, uh, you know, it's just not the way to go in the future. But uh, I also think it's, it's, uh, it's, Mourinho is sort of it's been outdated now he hasn't seemed to be like like Klopp and and Pep they seem to be have changed with the times their tactics their approach to the game uh you know Mourinho just doesn't seem it's, it's all about him and that in the modern game there's just no way you can pull that off with well, these confronta- millionaire players yeah you know? Con- confrontation confrontational leadership which is his buzzwords doesn't fly in this era and then the other right. thing is that I read about him is that he he drove players crazy because he he never developed like a, a style. All he would focus on was the team they were playing that week and just specifically what they had to do in that game. Period. So so there was no there was no like Spurs style. It was just you know it was kind of like score a goal and then park the bus and that was about as creative as it. As you know it, it reminds me I had dinner with. Um... It was a, he's a top college basketball coach who had coached in the pros. I don't want to give his name away, but he said to me, I can really yell and motivate my college players. I have a lot more leverage on them. He said, when I went to the pros, he goes, you can yell at that locker room maybe twice a year, three times a year. It's if you get on them, they're kind of like, they'll just blow you off. They will not listen anymore. So you, you know, and I mentioned it on the show many times, you have to be more of a psychiatrist yeah. Than a uh, than a coach sometimes when you're dealing with these big players, and it seems like Mourinho just kind of went to that old kind of bullheaded, kind of Sam Allardyce kind of just you know rough and tumble move forward coaching thing, and it just he's run yeah, out of well, he's I run mean, out of runway. I, I don't I don't see him getting hired again in the Premier League just because he's kind of burned his bridges, but I could easily see him end up in China or Eastern Europe. Oh yeah, they don't care as much. They actually like that. They like the fact that he's getting in people's faces. Right, right. More confident. And he's going to take that 50 million pounds and, uh, and 55 well. million. Is that staggering? I that's mean, I knew that he had made a lot of money along the way, but that's just unbelievable. Or he hey, so great. I want to mention this for you. Chelsea, uh, you know, knocks off Man City one, one zip in the semis and City's uh, bid for quadruple. 
Yeah, Man City was kind of playing. I, I, I refer to them as their B team, not they're really, the, the, you know, they don't really have a B team, but they're not their starting 11. And uh, they just were a little bit off their game, but Chelsea played well. The, the thing that actually, you know, because we like to bring it back to American players, Zach Steffen made a play in that game that cost a goal that was just mind boggling for a goalkeeper of that. It wasn't a I I don't know if you saw it. But it was it was like a two on one break and Stefan got caught in just no man's land out in the box for reasons that are unbeknownst to me. And it ended up being the winning goal. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I just it, no, 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 I felt I felt for him because it was just like it wasn't a, one of those things where a goalie whiffs on a back pass and it goes in. But it was just I couldn't for the life of me figure out what he was doing. All right. So MLS opening weekend, uh, we have John Strong on. So that's uh, going to be interesting to get caught up with John. We've already talked to him, actually, uh, and he was great. Um, but both Fox and ABC broadcast opening games for the first time on an opening Saturday. Numbers pretty good, Grail, or how were they? Yeah, they were They were good. So Fox was doing, as as we heard from uh, John, Fox, well, was here. Doing, yeah. uh, Fox was doing the um, LAFC Austin game uh, in L.A., and they drew up 485,000 viewers. And then for ABC was doing the Inter-Miami LA Galaxy game and they drew 482,000. And just as a frame of reference on the, on the ABC broadcast, um, they had a combined average of 558,000 viewers, which was the highest com uh, combined rating they've had on ESPN since 2011. And ESPN Deportes was up 53%. So that the Deportes side of the equation, you know, maybe that was because, um, you know, I, I think Inter Miami and uh, and LA Galaxy, but maybe because you had Chicharito. Mm. And that's a feel good really story, huh? Chicharito scoring. He uh, really struggled last year. So maybe he's coming out of the gate a lot stronger. I read a great interview with him in Soccer America, and he was talking about he's clearly seeing a sports psychologist, and he was talking a lot about how he needs to be more vulnerable. And uh, which I thought was really kind of healthy because he'd lost his dad last year and he had two goals right. and just total. So he's already matched his goal total. And I just, you know, I root for him. Yeah, that's good. Sam? Yeah, uh, you know, my takeaway from the first weekend, and I, you know, I hate to be the one that's always bringing up something negative, but uh -oh, I, Doctor Negative, but that's your nothing, job, Sam. But you know, nothing. But I, I'm on the side of the MLS here. I mean, the Super League story was so big; it makes sense that it dominated. I know, but I'm getting. You know, we reference Rory Smith's stories quite a bit in the New York Times. I think he's a fantastic writer. Um, I like, but the New York times doesn't give any love to the MLS. They had about a 500 word, you know, preview of the season. And, you know, on the same day, they have three stories about, you know, like Alan getting sold, you know, PSG's marketing. I mean, I'm all for them covering soccer. I love it, but I don't like when it's at the expense of washing out something that's, I mean, there's two MLS teams in New York, you know, they can, right. they can get a little something going. They barely cover those teams either. I mean, they're so. like the. I mean, they don't even cover the Rangers or any of those teams. But you know, keep well, they, keep it a they little. They cover more your local. Rangers a lot more than they cover my Devils. So feel good about true, that. True, <laughs> true. Take it outside, guys. All right. So talking uh, D one men's college soccer. Uh, this both tourneys are to be played entirely in six cities across North Carolina later and later rounds in Cary. North Carolina and a frequent guest on this show uh, is the number one ranked team in the country. Clemson, Mike Noonan, go Noons, go Noons. So, um, so this is good. They're at least getting a season in. It's kind of like a bubble. It's kind of like a pseudo bubble carry. I feel like all roads always lead to carry North Carolina. Yeah. Don't you? It's like, you could be, you could be over in, uh, 
Peking and you somehow end up in North Carolina for the final. So it'll be good. Yeah. 36 teams in the men's and 48 in the women's. I and, think, yeah. Uh, you know, Florida State's the, uh, that's an interesting story is you would just expect that UNC would be the number one seed for the women, but they're not Florida State's number one. And UNC is the underdog for a change. So that should be interesting. I, I like it all being in one place. Yeah, like this. I mean, the, like the Champions League last year, I think was the most exciting quarterfinals, semis and final in a long time because it was yeah. all in the, all the teams were there. You really created this like buzz. Obviously, there weren't fans, which was too bad, but still it was great. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I hope they maybe keep some of this going when things return to normal, whatever that yeah, is. Yeah, you know, we're again, we're hoping uh, we've had Sasha on and some of the guys, the coaches, college coaches about the split season and maybe this would be a good precursor to that though the ncaa moves like meat you know they i mean maybe so you could do slow. like you know i know it's hard to take up a whole week but like you know maybe you have like the quarterfinals one saturday semifinals on wednesday and then the final you know that next yeah. saturday or sunday so then like you know you got a whole week that you're really focusing on these games and getting and our alma mater umass is in uh, is in the ncaa tournament but you mm-hmm. know the, the hard part is is you're looking at this uh it's a better time to be playing the games but up north right now, if you're playing, it's still cold. So you got to go down south. But, um, you know, May would be perfect in this area. For, mm-hmm. You know, as school's wrapping up, you get your college, um, your college finals. Because, look, playing soccer at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, Mass, on a November, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon in November, you are freezing, man. And, you, you, you know, I felt bad for the fans, all seven of them, you know, not so much the players because you're running around. But, uh, you know, we these games should really be celebrated, these Final Fours. They yeah. should be big deals with lots of kids and fans and families, wherever they are. Well, and, it'll be uh, interesting, not. too, because I, I think it I think it may and I hope not, but I think it may fall through the cracks a little bit because I think everybody's time clock is so off mm-hmm. in terms of like yeah. seasons and sports and when things are supposed to happen. So I hope they promote that. I think ESPN U, I believe, is carrying a lot of these games. I hopefully I got that right, but hopefully they're promoting it because I just feel like a lot of people are kind of disconnected from the regular season, right? They they're not right. sure that something like this. Plus, they're just used to a fall season. Yeah, for sure. Right. All right so one of the thirty thousand streaming services we have to get. So uh, all right, guys, well, let, let's uh, let's get John on. Let's take a break here real quick. Um, you know. Uh, Apropos talking about college soccer, MLS, and John Strong, a great voice in the American game. Uh, he's the play-by-play, lead play-by-play guy for Fox Sports. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, John Strong. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And by Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com, and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, he's Fox's lead play-by-play announcer, a true American voice in this game, and we all love it. We love what he does. It's John Strong. John, welcome to Over the Ball. 
Thank you so much. It's uh, it's good to be chatting with you. And and yeah, in this sort of uh, COVID Zoom, you know, distance experience <laughs> uh, world, uh, it's a good reminder there are other human beings out there. And uh, it, we're, we're talking soccer, which is always a fun thing. Absolutely. I think soccer got us through this whole COVID uh, culture that we've uh, been in the middle of. So how to feel good. You're in the uh, you're in the dustbin there for a year waiting to get out and call some games. You got back out last weekend. That LAFC Austin game. Talk about that. What was it like to be back in the booth and and working? Yeah, I mean that was a fun one because I mean, gosh, I'm trying to think. So we did March second week of March last year, and that was a, you know we did a game at LAFC, and that was it. And like three days later, the whole world shut down, and mm-hmm. and we came back. You know, we did the bubble tournament, we did games in the fall, but it was all in fact most of them. I mean, I'm in Portland in a studio. Everyone else is in LA. It's it's very different, distant, very remote. We got into the stadium. Uh, for the Western Conference final in an empty stadium, which was super eerie yeah, because weird. we'd not done a game in an empty stadium like that. And there were fans in Columbus for MLS Cup, but it, it felt very different being back at LAFC um, because it was where we had sort of ended, you know, the, the that version of our lives and careers, I guess you could say in one sense. Um, and there's just something about that building and there's a great energy and the sun is shining and it was a really fun, cathartic way to sort of kick off the new season and, you know, a feeling of of... I think momentum and excitement um, one way or the other hurtling headlong into, you know, sort of we're seeing more fans in stadiums and we're traveling more and those sorts of things. So it was a great way to start. I mean, it's still going to be a hybrid for us of games that we're doing, um, you know, remotely and then some travel and things like that. So it'll be in fits and starts, but that was that was a really, really neat day just to be back and just to sort of soak it in a little bit again for the first time uh, in a while, quite like that. Yeah, and it's also interesting about how much we do miss the fans out there, how much a part of the game they really are. You know, in the beginning, I was like, well, this is kind of cool. I'm hearing the players talk to each other, you know, calling square and back and all the things you t- say on a soccer field and the tactical stuff they're yelling at each other. But after a couple of games, I was like, uh, okay, we need some people back there. You know, we need that noise. Did it change the energy of how you announce a game? Do you, oh, do you yeah. feel the fan stuff when you're Hugely. announcing? You know, even calling games off monitor, because we've done that. I mean, over the years, I've called so many games off monitor games in Europe or South America, stuff like that. That wasn't new. What's new is not having fans. And, and even when you're in a studio a thousands of miles away, you're still feeding off that energy. Um, you're, you're still playing off the energy as well, knowing when to shut up and sort of lay out and, and let the crowd, you know, bounce off of them. And so that was really difficult. And it's interesting because, yeah, we were at Fox Sports sort of out front pushing, I think the official term was Sono fans, but it was basically, um, it was the crew that was like the audio crew from the Hollywood Bowl that came in and was doing the enhanced crowd audio, fake crowd noise, whatever you want to call it, just to give it something. I remember talking to them. Yeah. Um, before the first day we did MLS's back and they were setting up like a baseball crowd. I said, you got to stand with soccer. They're not responding to plays. They're, they're laying the base track, like the supporters in soccer. It's, it, it's like the percussion section. Like they're just laying the, the baseline for everything for 90 minutes, much more so than it is just reacting to right. cheers or booze. And the guy's like, Oh, okay. So having something like that w- was a big help because without it, just your energy is sucked and drained. But you know, I know at first there was some concern, particularly in Germany, with some supporters groups of, you know, are we just going to be replaced? I mean, ticket prices are getting higher. You're mm-hmm. playing games on Monday nights. That was a big thing in Germany. And this increasing sense of the supporters are being pushed out at the expense of television. I think what this reminded us all and reinforced is the significance and the importance mm-hmm. of the fans, the supporters, the atmosphere. It sets the backdrop. 
you can have all of the great talented players and the billion dollar TV contract you want. If it's being played in an empty stadium, it's not as good to watch and it's not being watched as much. So I think it's actually been a really good year for supporters in that sense. I think it's reminded us all the significance of that. And, um, you know, part of it will be, yeah, it's like, when do people get comfortable again, being jammed in shoulder to shoulder, like sardines in a, in a standing terrace. I think that's, that will come, but, um, even just to have even, and it was honestly, it was drums more than anything else at LAFC, just that level of percussion, just to give the, the game some sort of a rhythm and some sort of a beat. Uh, my goodness, does that make a world of difference? Yeah, as long as they're not vuvuzelas, uh, we can't. We, we don't you know, need those. The, here's the thing, though. I had I had a plastic horn. We didn't know it was a vuvuzela <laughs> until 2010. It wasn't uncool yeah. until 2010. I was yeah. I was in the Timbers Army with a plastic horn. It wasn't uncool. So 2010 ruined it. Before then, you had plastic horns. It was no big deal. I don't know what what happened in South Africa. I know it was driving everybody crazy. Uh, Grail. <laughs> Uh, yeah, John, thanks for joining us. Uh, we, we love to talk about how the sausage is made when we have commentators such as yourself on. And I was just curious, when, when you and Stu aren't together, um, which I'm assuming happens quite a bit, you know, how, does, how, how do you guys prepare differently just to make sure that that fluidity um, is, is there that, uh, that would be if you were actually next to each other when you can kind of play off each other a little bit more? Yeah, listen, sometimes it's hot dogs and sometimes it's bratwurst. You know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> I, I think that was that was the most difficult thing in a lot of ways, even more difficult than not having fans was was being separated. You know, Stu is in L.A. and I'm in Portland and we have we call it a snoop cam where we can see each other. Um, but there's still a delay. I mean, it's part of what happens is by the time the video signal bounces to Portland and then my audio signal bounces back, I sometimes am hearing Stu shrieking before I've even seen what's happened by like a tenth of a second. So we at oh, least gosh. have that. It, <laughs> and we can lean back on the fact that we did so many games over a period of years that it wasn't, you know, we, we step on each other once or twice because we're not there and there's a little bit of a delay. But by and large, it's been fine because we've we've done it enough and we've sort of mm -hmm. fallen back on that. I don't know if I, a different partner with a different chemistry and a different work history, if it would have been quite as good as it, as it has been, particularly in a sport like soccer, because, you know, I did a couple of college football games and college football, football in general, is very regimented. The play-by-play -play talks here. And then the analyst talks here and it's very clearly delineated. Soccer mm -hmm. is much more free flowing than that. It's, mm -hmm. you know, hockey's the same kind of a thing when the pucks live, Play-by-play -play guy talks when the puck is dead. It's the time for the analyst. And I push the boundaries significantly with sort of how I weave in and out of storytelling and I'll sort of bring stuff up for Stu. So it was nice. It was kind of a fun reinforcement. And one of the best compliments we could receive was when people said, I had no idea you guys were in the same place. That's as ever. If people can't tell that the whole studio is on fire behind us, we've done our <laughs> job. And we have plenty of experience in those types of situations. But that was a really cool thing, even though, yeah, being back uh, together side by side for a couple of games that we did, that was a huge just because it, it makes life so much easier. Yeah, there, you guys have some good camaraderie and the chemistry is definitely there. So it's been enjoyable to watch. We're big proponents on this podcast uh, of American broadcasters being given the chance yeah. uh, to to do the games. And Fox, you guys have certainly done that. Um, and it's uh, it's been, been good to watch. Sam, did you have a follow up? Yeah, John, to build off that um, a little bit in terms of prep, I know in your background, you just mentioned football, but I know you've also done lacrosse, softball, hockey, a little bit of everything. And I'm curious how that all translates into kind of what you bring to soccer, whether you're sort of taking on and off these hats or if you're sort of flowing, it all flows through. 
Yeah, and uh, doing the Westminster Dog Show for a second time uh, coming up <laughs> in really? June, actually, which I'm super duper excited for. Nice. That, that was the yeah, most fun thing ever voice. last year. That was really cool. Um, no, so I think what I would say is this, that my actual physical preparation is a hybrid of things that I learned from other broadcasters and picked up off of them when I was young and then sort of applying it um, to soccer. You know, one of the big differences is that the, the type... I'm trying to not keep this an hour long answer. Um, <laughs> most of the examples you could get of, of how soccer broadcasters prepare comes from England or Spanish language broadcasting. Right. And the expectations of a play by play announcer are entirely different than on American television, where if you look at the notes, I remember sitting once uh, Sky Sports, their, their Super Sunday crew, I forget who the play by play announcer was. Um, it wasn't Martin Tyler. But he and Gary Neville were calling a game, and I just sort of was sitting behind them at the Emirates. And the play-by-play guy had really no notes. He basically had one line on each guy that he would just sort of roll through the starting lineup with, and that was it. And then he would just sort of call the game. Whereas there were moments during the game where I'm sitting there, okay, like there was an academy kid debuting for Manchester United. I'm like, I want to, like, what's his story? I want to know about it. Right, Who's this kid right. on the field? Those sorts of things are very different. So the types of notes that I bring are different. As far as my style on the air, it's interesting. Historically, the comparison has been between hockey and soccer. Those are thought of as the two very similar sports because it's low scoring. You're shooting at a goal. Lots of crossover. JP Della Camera was the Atlanta Thrashers voice for a while. Steve Cangelosi is called Devil's Games forever. Um, and there's been other crossovers as well. Dan Kelly in Chicago for a while. I actually don't think that's a good comparison at all because chance, 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 chance. It's a frenetic pace. Sometimes we get that in soccer. The bigger influence, honestly, on how I call games was really baseball in a lot of ways and sort of the Vin Scully style that I got taught to me in college by a guy named Rich Burke, um, who's done minor league baseball in Portland forever. And he worked with me a lot on how do you weave in and out of storytelling and play by play? How do you he worked with me a lot on think of it like driving a car. Uh, can you don't just slam on the brakes or floor the accelerator? Don't be talking like this and then all of a sudden, you know, you have to be able to build your way up to it. You have to be able to, I think the modern reality of broadcasting is anyone who's watching a game is doing something else at the same time. They're messing about on their phone. They're the kids are screaming. You have to, even on television, you have to give them some sort of a clue. Hey, look up, watch the screen. Like we hate it as fans would, oh wait, someone scored, you know, and you sort of miss it. Right. So those sorts of things have, have influenced me heavily. And then a lot of it has been, you know, if you think of a, of a continuum and Martin Tyler on one edge and Andres Cantor in the other, I can hear myself in 2014 at NBC going way too much Martin Tyler where I sound like I'm bored. I, I just am, am too understated. And there are times in the summer of 2017, I was too much like Andres Cantor and I've got Stu and landed next to me. And it's just like too much talking, like dial back. Yeah. So it's been a process over years. And I think in the last year, honestly, you know, we, we needed to push energy more because there is no crowd. There are no fans. We're in a studio. So we're having to sort of, yeah, put down on the accelerate a little bit more than we might. And then sometimes as, as what happened in the Western conference final, um, I sort of just drove the car off the road and I just sort of lost it right at the end there. Cause I was, I was driving too hard late in the game, afraid that if I don't sell this really hard, it's, people aren't going to get it such a big thing. The team is coming back from two goals late because there's not 60,000 fans. So that's all been an interesting process. I think what it comes down to as well is that the culture I was brought into at NBC and then we brought with us to Fox is we listen back to everything we do. We critique everything we do ourselves. We get critique from our, our teammates and it's a constant sense of improval. If you ever in anything in life feel like you got it figured out, 
you're done. You're toast. And, and that's toast. been a big part of, of, I think, what has helped me to, you know, get to where I am in a, in a relatively brief amount of time. Yeah. And I, you, you feel that work that you guys have put into it. And I feel like you're a soccer broadcaster. Like you've really, you're committed to it and you've studied it. And in many sense, uh, you're sort of one of the first American broadcasters. So you're sort of setting the plate for how Americans do the game. Because like you said, the influence of baseball uh, is in there because this is what we've grown up with as kids watching here in the United States. I was telling the guys last week on the show, you know, Rebecca Lowe, I had on and, and she was saying something about, well, you don't remember him? He played for Everton in the 70s in the midfield. I'm like, there was no way to know that he played in the midfield in the 70s. I go, do you know who Will Chamberlain is? She's like, no. I go, you don't know Will Chamberlain? Or Larry Bird? It's like, no. I'm like, see, this is our shared experience as Americans that you bring to the game. So it's uh, it's been fun to watch. Well, I appreciate that. I think it's something I take really seriously as someone who, as a fan felt very isolated as an American soccer fan um, and can still feel that way as a broadcaster of how do we merge these things and how do we mm -hmm. become this great sort of a hybrid melting pot of all these influences. And, you know, my other thing I think of a lot as a triangle of like, you know, Andres Cantor at one point, Martin Tyler at one point, Al Michaels at another point. And where am I within that triangle at any given time? And how do I bring in without being patronizing? I do think there is for very legitimate reasons an aversion towards always oh, like the Steph Curry of MLS because it's been right. done in a very patronizing way. Because there have been American broadcasters who don't know the sport, who didn't try to learn it, or at the very least, I would say in the case of Gus Johnson, he was put in a no-win situation because yeah. you wouldn't have someone calling a Super Bowl on three years of trying to figure out football. There's just, there's so much to it and it takes time. And and I think it's a benefit of, yeah, I've spent my whole life as, as a soccer fan, but also I do think there can be a mistake made in, um, and I'll choose my words carefully here just because I don't want anything to come off as, as critical of anyone else because it's not how I feel it. But I do think sometimes in our quest for, to use the buzzword authenticity, you can sort of exclude a little bit of things that are authentic here to the US. And I don't think you should go too hard one way or the other. Um, maybe the the shootouts and the countdown clock wasn't the answer in 96. <laughs> yeah. Maybe having every MLS team called FC something isn't the answer in 2021. There's a balance. And so I take very, very seriously that opportunity to be someone standing on the shoulders of JP Della Camera and Bob Lee and Rob Stone and Phil Shane and, and some of these other guys that have been in MLS since 96, Dave Johnson and Joe Totino, and trying to sort of take what they've done and push it to that next level. And I still, you know, guys like Jake Zivin and Evan Weston and Mike Watts, I was texting with a little bit earlier for something, a lot of great young American broadcasters coming yeah. up too. And can I pay back to them a lot of what JP especially did did for me and try to help them along? And if it means I'm training my replacement, fine. But without going too far over the top of navel gazing, it's something I take an immense amount of pride and responsibility in is, yeah, listen, if you if you watch soccer on the different networks, there are relatively few American voices and being right. an American voice calling the world cup, even calling MLS, that's not something that's universal. And, and that's something I take very seriously. Let's get grail. Yeah, John, um, American sports broadcasts generally are known to be very stats centric and you seem to find a night, a happy medium. Um, I feel sometimes I'm, I'm just overserved stats for the sake of stats being jammed in there. 
And I'm just curious how you kind of measure that. Cause I always think like a well-placed stat one is so much better than just an onslaught of 15. And I'm just curious how you kind of weave those into your play by play. Yeah. I mean, that was something I got hammered in me at NBC when I first showed up there because I was that guy. I love the stats and the nuggets and the research. And it was like a, a you know, machine gun at times. <laughs> and Shaw Brown has been my producer for a long time coming with us to Fox and, and has been one of my very good friends was really hands-on with me of like, stop, like, don't give me 10, give me the two good ones and make sure they fit in the moment as well, which right. sometimes means you leave something on the table. That was a really awesome, but it just, it wasn't relevant to the game. Right. And, and, um, and sometimes I try too hard to have the perfect nugget or context or quote for the moment. And I'm not just calling the game and letting it be what it is. So as I said, it's that process, but I, I think it's relevant. Can, does the stat add something? D does, does it, you know, one of the benefits theoretically of analytics is that it takes us from, oh, I think he's a good player. Oh, we should have scored. And it's like, well, based on what? And, and trying to give us some sort of a more rational scientific answer. And I do think it relates to the larger notion of, you know, are you only allowed to comment and have your opinion out there if you've played at a particular level, which I'm not a huge believer in, but absolutely it can get bogged down. We've struggled with expected goals. Um, you know, listen, we can get to a point in America where we understand 300 is a good batting average and we understand 100 is a good quarterback rating. Americans can, we fit, but it takes time and repetition and being able to, one of the things I'm working with even for this weekend is there's really interesting numbers that Opta puts together expected goals, which is a measure of where did you take the shot expected goals on target, which is a measure of where did the shot end up? Was it in the 10th row? Was it right at the goalkeeper? Was it in the top corner? And you can use those stats to find some really interesting things about, you know, when we say, Oh, we should have scored there. Well, based on what, but also how good is this guy actually putting the ball where he wants it to go. And, and, you know, going further than just, Oh, he has, two goals in 10 games it's like well why so trying to evolve my own understanding of those things trying to do it in a way that it adds to the broadcast and people understand what you're saying and you're not just losing someone and yeah also understanding that sometimes the best broadcasting is just shutting up and just letting people watch it for themselves and hear the crowd and and you know we don't need to add everything amen amen brother <laughs> so yeah and to go back to a couple of moments you know you talked about your mentors i i knew that you know, I know that in stand-up comedy, I mimicked the other comedians that I admired until I eventually got my own voice. And that's the road you, uh, you seem to be on. We also, I think right now, have you in between player interviews. Um, you're doing this podcast, which we've talked about on this show before about how basically I want to know who those players are out in that field. And because it, you have a vested interest then knowing, oh, he, he graduated from UVA and he started with NYFC and now he's betrayed. You know, all that backstory gives it some depth. And we seem to know it uh, in a lot of the other sports, in the Premier League stuff. And so it's great that you guys at Fox are doing that, doing player profiles, so we can kind of know who these people are and the journeys they've had. Have you ever heard the Arlo White Thierry Henry story from 2012? This is this is a great story. So you know, the, the tradition in American broadcasting, particularly in football, is the production meetings. The day before every NFL game ever, head coach, quarterback, star players, coordinators are sitting down in a conference room in a hotel or at the training facility with the broadcasters. That's a universal thing. And it's actually, I read, it was actually a John Madden thing in the 80s at CBS that created that. That does not exist in world soccer. I can't emphasize enough how that doesn't exist. That just does not compute. There is no access to players. There's no practice interviews. There's no, like none of those things. Um, 
and I've experienced as an anecdote, a PR person at an MLS club whose experience was in a premier league club came over and they were completely bewildered by this request where we're like, yeah, we want to sit down with the manager and three players before a game. And he's like, Martin Tyler would just call up the, the PR man for the club and they would just talk through things. And I'm like, that violates everything I was taught in journalism school, by the way. So the first to do this was NBC. When NBC got the rights to MLS in 2012, they were applying a lot of how Sunday night football does business to soccer. So the first game was New York Red Bulls at Dallas in 2012. And uh, Thierry Henry is asked to come in for this production meeting. And Arlo White, Kyle Martino, Russ Thaler, Robbie Earl was a part of that first one. You have like Pierre Moussa and Sam Flood, like these giants of NBC sports that are there for the first one. And Thierry Henry rocks in the room and he goes, what is this? Why am I here? Why should I be talking to you? Sky Sports are the greatest broadcasters in the world. They don't ask for this. Why? You know, Because again, he's never experienced this. And Arlo White, Right. And I give him a lot of credit because I'm I'm exceedingly non-confrontational. But Arlo said, well, Thierry, um, that's great, but we're in America. And here in America, Sunday Night Football is the most watched sports broadcast. And this is what Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and everyone do every week. So the expectation is you're going to do what those stars do. And he was like, fine. And and there was one other, well, the first Red Bulls game I did where I could hear him yelling at the team's PR guy. Like, I'm not going to meet with these guys. You know, call Don Garber for me. I don't care. But by the end, when he figured out, Part of the difference is that we're not out to get them. We're not out to create a headline. Right. We're not out to create a scandal or, or we want to tell their story. We had to make him leave our last meeting with him before the playoffs in 2014. They were eating dinner. We're like, dude, go. Like once they figure that out, it becomes a lot easier and you get great stuff. You build great relationships. Peter Vermees is a great example. I can ask Peter Vermees a more critical pointed question that I can any other coach really because he and I built a relationship of trust that he knows that I'm not there to make him look bad on TV. And, and so you know what, I John think, and John Vermes will give you a pointed, strong answer. Yes. That's the beauty of Peter. Yes. Yeah. And I, Peter, I love Peter. He he's one yeah. of my favorite coaches and, and, yeah. but he understands how to play the game. He understands that that nature of it. And so that becomes a really important part. Absolutely. Of what we do is telling these stories and, but again, doing it in a way that just doesn't, exist anywhere else in the world it's uniquely american that's been a challenge trying to get coaches and players sometimes to sort of understand that and be okay with it that's good it's our game when it's here man that's the way it is there, you know, I listen, about when I, 25 million I, people can't be wrong watching the nfl every week there's something they got to be doing right there you know what i mean exactly i always tell the story when i, I was working for uh, espn uh i know i was actually working for fox when doing the um the 98 world cup in france and I scheduled an interview with George Best and I was ecstatic, really excited about it. And the night before I got a call in my hotel room that says, uh, well, that's some, it, now how are you paying the $30,000? Yes. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, in my country, you can interview Michael Jordan for nothing. You don't yeah. pay for interviews. So it's a, uh, it is very different. So, uh, all right, well, good. Before we let you go, John, we, we so appreciate it. Cause we know you're busy. It's the start of the season and everything you're getting back in the saddle, but um, what are your thoughts quickly on the uh, not so super league that, uh, that came out? You know, I'm fascinated by a lot of things of, of that. Um, there's a lot of tentacles to it because you know, it doesn't, the fact that it's collapsed now doesn't actually solve or fix anything. The same right. issues are largely true. You still have a large super elite. You still have a tension between UEFA and FIFA and the leagues and the clubs. You still have enormous inequality in European soccer. I think it's one of the most fascinating dynamics is that what in European soccer they phrase as, as open, fair competition isn't winning the championship. It's being in the league. An nice. open system and, and fair 
competition is is and you hear it phrased that way it's only about a team being able to get promoted to the premier league it's never about that team actually winning the premier league whereas in america the accusation of course oh it's a closed shop and yet our parody is to win the title anyone can win the championship because of that parody so that dynamic it, it fascinates me endlessly um we're gonna have the same issue you know when florentino perez the president of Real Madrid comes out and says young people these days, they're not watching as much soccer and they really only want to watch the best teams against the best teams. The unfortunate reality is he is actually correct. And this is another tension and an issue is when you say soccer fans or supporters or whatever, some of that is the people that are outside Anfield or outside Manchester United's training facility today. We're blocking the bus at Stanford bridge. Some of that are the millions of people in America or in Southeast Asia or in Africa yeah. who yeah, they really only are watching the biggest 12 or 15 teams. And so how do you fix that? How do you unwind that? How do you, I agree. I think it's a huge challenge. I think it has hampered the Bundesliga. I think it's hampered La Liga in growing in America is the fact that the championship race is not interesting. Like Bayern right. wins. Like we tried for years with the Bundesliga and A, people only really ever wanted to watch Bayern and B, it was never dramatic in the way that a championship game is because who's going to win this one game to win the title. So absolutely there are big systemic challenges that exist in European soccer. Nothing has been solved. We've sort of revealed them more. And, and I'm interested to see, I, I will think short term, there's an opportunity here at the very least there's a leverage that everybody outside the super club group has right now in this moment to redress some of the imbalances and inequalities if right. they strike quickly. However, at the same time, we also, if you remember when the pandemic struck last year, we were coming through an area where we were having these same sorts of conversations. There's too many games. There's too many competitions. FIFA's fighting with UEFA over this expanded Club World Cup. Maybe there's an opportunity for us all in this pandemic to come together as a global football community. And that clearly <laughs> didn't happen. Right. So I'm interested to see what comes of it. But I will say, it. I bristled a bit at some of the people's reactions to the super league concept of oh this is going to create you know something like the mls i'm like well let's remind ourselves that what mls lacks in promotion and relegation it has in spades in championship parity we hear from players all the time alex ring just recently um ernst tanner had quotes this week the philadelphia union technical director they love it here because every week is a good game it's a competitive game anybody can beat anybody and you feel even if you're outside of one of the the big clubs in quotes, you have a chance to win the championship, not just exist, not just survive, not just cash in the check that you're in the Premier League, not the championship, but you can actually win the title. And, and I think that annoyed me that that is either deliberately being ignored or is not appreciated for something that is special about MLS right. within the great differences between how, how European soccer is done. Well, you'd wondered that you were thinking with soccer here that we were going to have a European influence. Maybe we would start promotion relegation. I find it interesting that really what could possibly happen is the American influence on European football teams. Like imagine if we move, Liverpool or Manchester United because you know they got a better deal right uh, at well Leeds. or even so, just yeah. you know remember a couple of years ago um Liverpool and Man City came into the final day of the Premier League season and in the end of being anticlimactic because Man City won their game and it was over but like what if the following week Liverpool played Man City at Wembley in a one-game playoff to win the Premier League title how many billions of dollars could that get? Gotcha. like you so 
like playoffs or a salary cap. Like these are actually really good things that maybe aren't the worst. I don't know. But um, but yeah, how you to your point exactly, America's influence over there, Europe's influence over here. I will also remind the focus on promotion and relegation and oh playoffs as opposed to a true league championship. Let's not forget the actual most popular soccer league in this country is Liga MX, which has no promotion or relegation and has playoffs twice a season. So let's let's the red herring sometimes of why MLS is or isn't or why the Premier League is or isn't uh, versus the, the reality of soccer in America. Touche. See, I like that. See, we, uh, you, you got your fa- you, you just you just gave us one of those little nuggets you sat on to the very end of the show. I love it, John. Good. Good this, timing. This, this is what I do instead of having friends or a social life or stuff like that. Is I, I come up you, with anecdotes. You timed that run well. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, John Strong, uh, again, uh, Fox Soccer's lead play by play guy. Man, we really appreciated uh, what you've done uh, and what you're doing. Uh, for the game in this country and how you cover it. And uh, you're, you're a critic of yourself and that's, that's a, a great way to keep growing. So um, we, uh, we appreciate you being on over the ball and uh, best of luck with the new season and hope to have you on again sometime, my friend. Hey, sitting in the studio by myself for, uh, for a year now, I'm glad that there's people watching and listening and I'm glad that our work's being well received. So I, and I you, and you still much. wore a mask. That's how safe you were <laughs> in that studio booth. All right, John, thanks a lot. Thank you guys. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. Ah, oh, God, how great was it talking to John Strong, huh? Yeah, good wow. guy. Like it. Love you know, that energy. Self criticism. Yeah. Little like I'm striving to be better. I mean, we you know all could take a lesson from that. Yeah, very know? very professional approach. And I love the uh, you know I mentioned his background being in different sports. You know, I mm-hmm. I think he's right on about you know you don't want to there are people who don't know anything about soccer who make really stupid comparisons to other sports, but there is no reason you can't make a good comparison to another sport. We do it in every American sport. You know, we have the power play quarterback in hockey. You know, no one, no one says you don't know about hockey. If you do that, we talk about guys being built like a linebacker when they're playing baseball, you know, we do this all the time. So it's not, it's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, analogies are the best way to explain many things. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm all for it. Well, but this is where we get our, our sort of second class citizen mentality when it comes to soccer. You know, I, I remember uh, I was in Paris watching a game and some the, the people behind me said, hey, can you sit down in front? And the English guy turned around to me and goes, oh, uh, sorry, it's not a baseball game, Yank. And I was like, <laughs> wow, I didn't even say anything. You know, and I, I just go to him. I go, yeah. Let an English guy tell me how you're supposed to act at a, at a, at a football match. Okay. And his, his face drained. He was like, oh, uh, touche, I believe is what he was thinking. So, uh, but yeah, that's a good point, Sam. That, that really is. But what I will say about John is I've never really appreciated. I know with our broadcast journalism history here in the United States, you know, Brent Musburger did football, basketball, but, you know, he did everything. It's, you're supposed to be a sports journalist. Soccer seems to be so specific. Even in the training, you have to play 11 months a year to be good at this game. Can't have yeah. football, basketball, and baseball season. I played all three in high school. You know, you can't do that anymore. But um, it seems like John has concentrated on soccer. He's a fan. He's loved it. And you can tell there's oh, a yeah. difference, you know, through and through. His and enthusiasm he, is infectious. 
plus he paid homage to to JP Della Camera and Bob Lee, who are the two nicest guys in the business. So uh, mm. so that's been wonderful. So he's building on that. All right, guys. So uh, that's a lot of time we got. So what do we got? We have a quick quiz before we yeah, get going. Yeah, I got a little quiz. So talking Super League and which you know has a lot to do with TV rights, money, etc. So I uh, I did a little looking into the value of TV right deals for both the Premier League and Champions League over time because I think this is okay. kind of where the Super League stems from ultimately. Uh, so first question, and this is courtesy of footballbenchmark.com. Uh, according to this site, what was the total EPL TV broadcasting rights revenue per season when it launched in 1992? So that's both domestic and foreign rights. How much total did they take in in TV revenue? Oh, Grail, this is right up here. I'm going to say total global. I mean, that mm-hmm. adds up to a lot of money. I'm, I'm going to say like... In 92, say, in 92. In 92. Oh, in 92? When it launched in 92. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say a billion dollars. A billion? Okay. Kevin? I'm going to say 72 million pounds. Okay. Uh, it's actually 254 million pounds or $351.5 million was the okay. total. So it was a little high. Of course, so not nowadays. Oof. What is it today? What do they take in globally in TV? 1.3 billion. Oh, I'm going to say 12 billion. Uh, 12 billion pounds. Uh, uh, I'll I'll go with, well, I guess I can. Let's just go with 12 billion dollars. Yeah, wow. I'm going to shoot that one. Right. Almost right on. 12.7 billion dollars or 9.2 billion pounds. So across that nearly 30 year period, that's an increase of 3,522%. And it wasn't enough. They wanted a super league and it wasn't (laughs) enough. They wanted that check from JP Morgan for 400 million wired into their accounts. So looking at the Champions League, this is from the website statista.com. I can only go as far back as 0304 on this, but what was the total Champions League broadcasting rights revenue in the 0304 season? I, I'm going to go with 600 million. I think it's way up, but yeah, I think Kevin? it was yeah, half a million, 500 million. Yeah. Okay, yeah, five hundred forty-one point three million. Oh, Flynn's on the board. No, wait, I, wait, I said six. You said five. We were right in the middle. Uh, you can't yeah. overshoot. Once Sam, you go over, Sam, were we right? I, that, right I think I think Grail had that one. Okay, so then <laughs> is right. This uh, this. The chart that I found only goes up to 2018, 2019, but what was it in 2018, 2019? So a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm gonna we're going say, from 541.3 million. Yeah, I'm going to say it was uh, f- uh, four, 4 billion. Kevin? 6 billion? All right, $2.9 billion. That's okay. so that's 2019. It may have gone up still. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's right oh, oh, at four was, now. I thought it was I today. Think, yeah. I think it's right at four, right? <laughs> so uh, that is uh, over a 16-year period. So it's not the same period yeah. that I did for the Premier League, but that's an increase of 432.7%. So Incredible. kind of understand, you know, where they well, And Sam, think as a point of compared, think of the $110 billion NFL deal that was just done. Yeah. 110 Crazy. billion dollars. Yeah. Crazy. All right. What games are we watching this weekend, boys? Uh, Greg, yeah, you want to go first? Go first. Okay. Uh, I got a call. I'm going outside Serie A this weekend. I'm going to look at. Wow. Wolf. Write this down, Grail. I'm going to Wolfsburg. I have to get myself up off the ground. <laughs> Wolfsburg Dortmund on Saturday, 9.30 a.m. on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, Wolfsburg are currently in third in the Bundesliga on 57 points. Dortmund are in fifth in, uh, with 52 
Uh, and it's a chance to see Americans, John Brooks and Gio Reyna as well. And they'll be, and they'll be up against each other too. Gosh, yeah. Gosh, uh, and then on Sunday, I like Lyon Lille in uh, the French league. That's at 3 PM on BN. Uh, Lille right, yeah. are currently in first place with 70 points. Lyon are in fourth with 67. Uh, it's a chance to see Tim Weah too, the American. Um, just a note too on the French league this year, the top four teams who are Lille, PSG, Monaco, and Lyon are all separated by just three points right now. So it's a really good, good title race. Good yeah. little parody there. It's getting it's hot. Real, the French, what are you going to be watching? Hot in the French kitchen. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going domestic with LAFC against Seattle, yeah. which is on Saturday, and then a great London derby. Of course, you knew I'd, I wouldn't let you down. West Ham, Chelsea, a great London derby on Saturday. Yeah, I want to watch go. that. Check out Polistic as well. All right, boys. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, we'd like to thank our guest today at Over the Ball, Mr. John Strong, great American voice in the game, does play-by-play -play for Fox. He's their lead broadcaster and uh, a great guest, gentlemen. Would you not agree? Fantastic. Absolutely. He's got to come back soon. He's got to come back. All right, everybody. That's all the time we have at OTB today. For Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB.